I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I wanna welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're gonna be talking about an important time in American history, really a defining time in the history of America in the 20th century that is still shaping America well now into the 21st century. And I think we'll be continuing to debate it um, over the next decades, the the great society. We joined today in that conversation by Amity Schlaes. She is a graduate of Yale University, probably familiar to many of our listeners. She is chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. And I think a lot of people know her, very widely published, well-known author and columnist, recipient of the Hayek Prize, the Bastiat Prize, and the Bradley Prize in 2021. I think she's won about every important prize that you can win (laughs) in journalism and in political economy. (laughs) Um, And not only is she a terrific writer in daily periodicals and for the popular press, but many of you know her from her wonderful books, uh, New York Times bestsellers, including The Greedy Hand, The Forgotten Man and a New History of the Great Depression, and of course, her wonderful biography of Calvin Coolidge. And of course, most recently, the book we wanted to talk with her about today, Great Society, A New History. Emily Schlaes, thanks for joining us on The American Idea. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, the title of your book, Great Society, A New History. Why do we need a new history of the Great Society? What, what have historians missed about the story? The Great Society applies, that phrase comes from the 60s, uh, and that was our last great progressive push. And many of the ideas and projects in the Great Society are being replicated in policy proposals today. So the question one would want to ask is, did those policies work out? Uh, um, another, and that, that's really what I tried to capture in this book, whether they worked out. Um, another point, you know, we live in the wor- world made by the great society. Joe Califano is an advisor to President Johnson, said we live in Johnson's America. President Johnson was the central president for the Great Society who coined the political phrase. Uh, we li- that, that's where we live. So you think of public radio or big housing laws or welfare as um, an entitlement under law like property. That, that all comes out of this period, as do, of course, Medicare, Medicaid, and, and other programs. Um, that we take for granted. So we were we are shaped by that period. We are shaped by its laws. We move among its laws as among skyscrapers. They make our our political landscape. So, so that's why it's important too. We're not always conscious of that, but of course that's true. So a lot of historians, as you know, from your own in your own book, and you mentioned them, other historians who have written on the Great Society. So it's obviously a defining moment in American life. But you had a you had, you have a different take on it. You call it a new history. Uh, what what's new, or or what do you think the historians have missed about it? Well, the Great Society uh, started as now in a period in a period of. Um, steeped in idealism. The book starts with a young man who goes to Washington and asks the people in the White House, why not socialism? Why can't we do that? Why why can't we share it all around and and make it work? And that that idealism is what other authors tend to capture because idealism is lovable. 
oh, yes, of course we want to help other people. Of course we want even the poorest to have resources. Of course we want the poorest to have access to education, all these things. Um, but the general tendency or so, and the general tendency of most authors is to write, it was great because it sounded great. It inspired hope as a policy. Uh, to my mind, however, I, I think to the to the thoughtful mind, hope cannot be a policy. One needs to see results after a while, and then one needs to examine the results and, and ask, well, was this worth the effort? Might one not try it another way? Might idealism not be cast another way? And there's so many lessons from the Great Society, which in my view, long-term, medium-term, uh, short term failed. Um, and we don't take those lessons because of our desire for nostalgia and because of our respect for idealism. So we're about to make the same mistakes again. That's why the book was important. And this book seeks to examine the results as well as the hope. Mm, very, very interesting. Um, the term Great Society itself, where did that term come from? I, our listeners have no doubt heard the phrase, but probably don't know the genesis of it. And they probably don't know who the main architects of the Great Society were. And you spend quite a lot of time in your book on that. Well, it, it starts with the idealism. So in England, there was a writer named Graham Wallace who wrote a book called Great Society. And it's a phrase that rings, right? Great. But, but he meant big, not perfect. Ah. Okay. So, so what is big? It, he meant, oh my gosh, we used to live in our village so isolated, but now we are getting the railroad and the telegraph and we are a network, a great society. That's a very modern and useful uh, way to look at great society. Um, that's not what came later uh, in, in uh, before the great society, before the sixties, the commentator Walter Lippmann wrote a book called good society, which to my mind is kind of a rebuke to idealists. He doesn't say great society, he says good, let's, let's get to good. Um, but by the time the 60s came, America was doing so well. The 50s were a period where we thought we could afford everything. We had no international competition to speak of. Uh, and we said, well, why not escalate? Why not accelerate? and go to great. We can go to the moon, Kennedy's promise, but we can also become great in the United States. So this was a phrase that was kind of bouncing around um, in the world of Lyndon Johnson when he became president. He liked it. One commentator said he caressed the phrase. He liked it so much. They embargoed the use of the phrase, uh -huh. uh, but he would break the embargoes because he liked to say great society, great society. And he he piloted it a few places and laid it out um, at the University of Michigan graduation uh, and said at one year at the University of Michigan graduation and said, we're going to we're going to improve things in three areas cities, countryside, and classroom. So that's three C's and have big programs. Then even beyond that, that notion and that day, the idea expanded. And when things didn't work out with certain legislation, he passed and signed a lot of legislation. Um, it was said of Lyndon Johnson that he made laws the way other men eat chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> uh, lots of laws. He, yeah. just, he just kept going. Um, and there were just a, a sort of string of laws as in the period under FDR, legislative activism with the 100 days in the Great Depression, 1933. And you know, some of these laws contradicted one another. Many were questionable. But the idea was Johnson, for example, an example of the idealism and high standard, he promised to cure poverty. He didn't say, I will reduce poverty. There was no, there was no, um, no measure to, to his plan. It was all urgency. And part of that was fired by the civil rights movement, the fierce urgency of now, that, that now in the 60s, we've got to make all Americans equal, no more gradual work uh, that, that failed us in the view of many Americans, especially African-Americans. And, and it, it took too long for the South to desegregate. So the question is, did the slowness of um, of civil rights, our our distress over that, make 
give us a sense of urgency that we applied not only to civil rights, because of course there were good civil rights laws in the 60s that were necessary, but to everything. The urgency of the civil rights cause taking over all and, and give, giving a sense of urgency to all projects, some of which need not be urgent and might better be conducted more carefully and slowly. So this phrase, as you say, Lyndon Johnson was sort of enamored of it and spoke it at the, that commencement address at the University of Michigan. Um, we think of Johnson, and obviously I, I and I, probably most of our listeners most closely associate Johnson with the Great Society, but some of the main architects that you talk about and main movers and, and pushers for Johnson's Great Society program, who, who are they uh, in, in the 1960s? Well, you have an honorage, um, and I actually um, start the Great Society book with the Kennedys. Um, JFK was uh, inconsistent and, and relatively cautious. He had some conservative impulses, for example, relating to the gold standard and budgets. Uh, it, it's hard to tell where he was. Once in a while, he would get mad at businessmen, but he also was friendly to tax proposals, tax cuts, um, in order to to strengthen business that, that Johnson passed when JFK was assassinated. So you have to, you know, there's a whole book called JFK Supply Cider by, I think, Iris Stoll. Um, anyway, it, JFK was a mix, but it, his entourage was less of a mix. In particular, one person I noticed who I had never really studied, it was his brother, the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, who was a true progressive. So um, where did that show up? RFK believed in progressive laws. In those days, what pro bono work or public interest work meant was a nice law firm helps out a lady who comes to the office pro bono, um, say her husband is beating her and she needs a divorce or uh, they weren't pro bono wasn't usually class action or designed to change society, except in the instance of the one great, great public interest law from the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union. What RFK called for and funded through federal money was that lawyers go into public interest law full time rather than firms giving up a share of their time as charity. And he did that in a speech at the University of Chicago Law School. Basically, he said, You're, it, 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 you must do more. You must spend some of your youth as a full-time public interest lawyer trying to change society. That was a big shift. And we live at that today with all the suits. That, that was a relatively new concept for lawyers at, at, at the time. So RFK is interesting. Um, I uh, and he was sort of an extension of JFK. They were a family that led America, not just a man or an alter ego. Another figure I, I highlight in the book because he personifies the idealism and because he's so serious is Michael Harrington. This, in a way, is sort of J.D. Vance of the day. He wrote a book. How did he get famous? He was a, 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 a serious thinker, St. Louis, out of the Catholic tradition, and he wrote a book about Appalachia, the other America, the poverty of, of Americans in Appalachia, the poor America. So he, like J.D. Vance, started with Appalachia. And from there, he went to large, expansive programs that included not only Appalachia. And he, he um, this book impressed people, including people in the White House. And uh, he caught the eye of Sergeant Shriver, Kennedy brother-in-law, who was tapped by Johnson to run a poverty program. That was kind of a new idea then, too, a poverty program. And uh, the initial budget they mooted was a billion dollars. And Harrington told Shriver that was nickel, nickels and dimes. And Shriver, to his credit, said, I don't know about you, young man, but I never had a billion to spend before. It's <laughs> a new one for me. Uh, but anyway, that, of course, we spent many billions. And Harrington didn't stay in government long. He was too idealistic. He's a bit like Bob Reich, who worked for the Clintons, or I don't know, various people who, who help out on the campaign in the beginning of an administration and then proved too controversial for an administration in the Great Depression uh, New Deal. That figure to me was Rex Tugwell, uh, who was out after a while. Harrington wasn't in the administration, but he influenced it through his idealism. 
Um, and another figure I didn't know much about, though I'd heard his name throughout as a child, was Walter Ruther, R-E-U-T-H-E-R. And if, if you lived in the 60s, you heard the name Ruther. Walter Ruther said every night on the radio or on TV, just like you heard Secreta Secretary McNamara said about the Vietnam War, Ruther was the head of the United Auto Workers, the union for the car makers in the Midwest. And in those days, unions were a lot more important. And so were automakers as a share of the economy. Ruther was a true idealist and he wanted America to be a social democracy. And the Great Society was, was consciously or unconsciously patterned off what unions would demand from an employer, health benefits, more health benefits, you know, hospitalization, pensions, and beyond. So what, what was going on is uh, the auto workers uh, were able to demand quite a bit from the automakers and things seemed all right. So why, why not expand that and make all society, um, all society receive what auto workers can receive on a good day? So I was surprised uh, in writing the book how important Ruther was, um, uh, much more important than I thought. Of course, Martin Luther King is in the book. Um, entrepreneurs are in the book, but but the Great Society was basically as now a culture where idealism got far, and people believe, well, given colon our economy, we can do anything. Mm -hmm. It's always a, a given colon or all things being equal as they've always been in prosperous America since World War II, we can do anything. And, that that was the culture. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting because when I think that the, that idea that the Great Society is sort of um, labor unionism writ large for the whole country. Because um, when I think of labor unions, I think of um, advocating for the material interests of of the workers that the that the union represents. But you point out in the book, the Great Society is partly about economic redistribution. Uh, certainly, that's an important part of it, material interests. But even in the Great Society speech, LBJ talks about um, things of the spirit and kind of uh, cultivating or, or bringing out a greatness of spirit in, in the United States and in Americans that rises above just material interests. Can, what, well, I'm wondering if you there is, I mean, I, I don't think they would acknowledge it too much, but maybe they have the speechwriters. There were several speechwriters on that speech. Um, but uh, Calvin Coolidge talks about things in the spirit. It's, it's one of it, it's a way of saying government can't provide all. Yeah. Uh, so the, so so the main so the did 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 they have a this idealism? Did it extend beyond sort of let's redistribute uh, economic resources and material resources? to eat, give equality of outcomes, which is, I think, something that LBJ says. Oh, absolutely, says. yeah. I mean, it, the shift in the great society was, it started out certainly with Kennedy in the beginning with Johnson as the quality of opportunity. And I think most of us subscribe to that. There must be a quality of opportunity in the United States. You can interpret it differently. Do you want to spend a lot on education or, and, or teachers unions or not? But we all crave, uh, we, we feel we're entitled, Americans are entitled to equality of opportunity. But there was a shift, and you can mark where it happened. Uh, President Johnson gave a speech at the historically black university, Howard, where he talked about equality of result. That's much harder to achieve. And uh, effectively, the Great Society began to be committed to equality of result. That's very, very tough. So the original, um, concept, the poverty law that made Sergeant Shriver poverty czar was called the e Economic Opportunity Act. It wasn't called the Economic Equality Act. But you see a shift and the commitment ratcheting up. And that is also where it began to fall apart. Hmm. Now, you, you, you argue in the book, in fact, on page three, reading here and says, the boss said that the president, LBJ, a Roosevelt fan, told him that if serious economic redistribution was necessary to realize the long-delayed completion of the New Deal, then redistribution might be worth it. Um, some scholars have argued, and you seem to be agreeing here, that LBJ was sort of the third wave in a series of significant progressive presidents that started with Woodrow Wilson and then continued with FDR. 
is is do you see the great society as a, an attempt to continue and even complete the new deal there are big waves and little waves so you want to include tr and truman in there for example but yes and it's not just as i see it um Roosevelt knew Johnson, who was a young man and made him head of a youth organization in the New Deal, the National Youth Administration, I think it's called, um, in Texas. And Johnson worked when he was a young congressman for the New Deal. Johnson was the child of the New Deal in the 1930s. And of course, he wanted to finish what others had started. Johnson, uh, you have to think of, I mean, there's way too much attention paid to Johnson because he's so colorful, but think of him as a man who who operates in political terms. His idea of success is passing a law. Uh, and what's more fun than passing idealistic laws? <laughs> that was Johnson. That's what Roosevelt had done. Okay. Why not? And he had a big heart and he led with the heart. Uh, so I have a big heart. I'm going to pass laws to help people quantifying the result that that's something for something else johnson if you were a social scientist you'd say quantified inputs as results oh i passed more laws than other people so i must have had a great result but that that's questionable uh so, so there you are um yes yeah, so there's absolutely a, a connection in fact i think when johnson signed the oh gosh i think it's the medicare law he actually went to sit with Harry Truman uh, because Harry hadn't got a health care program through. I need to check that. Oh, You're really? Interesting. That's something else. Yeah, um, in Missouri. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, it was embarrassing to Truman what all he didn't get through, and Johnson made it good for Truman. Huh. How about that? I didn't know that. <laughs> um, the other thing, you know, Look, the 1960s from 64 on, a lot of, of course, people think about the Great Society, but they also think about the Vietnam War. And one of the things that was interesting to me in your, in your book is, on the surface, it seems like the Great Society and the Vietnam War are very different. You know, for many, for example, many people on the left generally supported the Great Society, even though, of course, there were left-wing critics of it for not going far enough. But a lot of the left opposed the Vietnam War and broke with Johnson over that issue. But the implication of your argument in your book is that, in fact, there's a lot of connection between the Great Society and the Vietnam War, at least as a way of thinking about the world and about politics and what policy can accomplish. Can you lay out that argument? I think it's very interesting, the connections between some of the ideas of the Great Society and the conduct of the Vietnam War. Well, of, of course, it's idealistic to think we can end communism or thuggery. So, but what happened with the Vietnam War is that it went to nothing. Who's over there? Not that many people to hundreds of thousands of Americans going over and dying and that being reported on TV every night pretty quickly. The mobilization of America in Vietnam and Johnson felt he needed to make it up to America and that the unrest in the streets was a function of the Vietnam War, either protest or just sorrow. Um, so and to some extent it was it was something to protest. Uh, so what can you do if you can't end the war tomorrow? Well, you can give society other things while they wait and to thank them for their their collective sacrifice that I, I think certainly the the coincidence of the vietnam war increased the spending domestically had there been no vietnam war it would have been harder to call for such spending and to find support for it but people think of it this way if you're a lawmaker what do you want you 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 want the cities to be quiet during your election campaign. Congressmen are elected every two years. They do not want a riot the year they're running for office. What makes a riot not happen? Well, maybe benefits. So, so there was this ever mounting commitment of benefits to keep America quiet. There is a fallacy about the Vietnam War though, which is that we ran into trouble because we spent so much on it. That's not quite true. Uh, but, by the early 70s, and I have a bunch of charts in the back of my book, you can see that spending on domestic cost more than spending on wars. Butter, we think of 
we say guns and butter, the two things government spends on defense or wars and domestic butter became costlier than guns very early. And what's more important, um, the butter commitments were what we now call, and they began to call entitlements, which meant they were forever commitments. Like, uh, uh, you know, your forever home, the new America uh, of, of outlays that the government may not be able to afford in future. And that's why I said long-term before, the things that were promised in the 30s were largely um, tenable, under the New Deal, the things that were promised in the 60s and 70s under the Great Society can't hold up. We can't necessarily, particularly now, outgrow our Great Society commitments by growing fast and being rich. You know, we just this week there was a report we had a lot of record tax revenues that still won't fix it. Medicare, Social Security, but Medicare and Medicaid are incredible burdens on our, our children, no matter how fast economic growth is. We have to reform them. That's what Johnson uh, the, gave us and what Nixon further institutionalized, which is what's interesting. Republicans and Democrats gave us the burden we have today together. Yeah, that's a fascinating part to me of the book. And to me, really uh, startling, and probably for many of our listeners who think that Nixon is elected in some respects as a reaction against LBJ. But one of the things you argue is that in domestic policy, Nixon continued in some ways even strengthened the Great Society. Yes, and I'm very reliant on John Cogan who uh, of Stanford U, who wrote a book called The High Cost of Good Intentions here because he quantifies thoroughly, if you're into the numbers, the expansions of the Great Society under Nixon. For example, food stamps grew much faster. And that is very, very, um, you know, it's a tradition we have today. Um, well, why are food stamps bad? I was once asked this uh, by a student in a secondary school in Arizona. You know, you're shaming me. My family has food stamps. Here's the answer. It's no shame to need food stamps. It's no shame to be in poverty. It's no shame to come to want. But what is a shame is when not only you, but if you have the expectation that not only yourself, but also your children and grandchildren will be dependent on food stamps. That's a shame. And it was this enshackling nature of the entitlements created in the 60s and 70s that was so insidious and hurts us so much so much now. Um, that was important. And Nixon participated in that, even though he saw through it. Interesting, because uh, the, this podcast is part of the Ashbrook Center, as you know, and John Ashbrook uh, ran against Nixon in a sort of quixotic <laughs> primary uh, effort in 1972 on the, on the slogan, No Left Turns. Oh, yeah, because Nixon made a left. Nixon proved more progressive than many of his backers in 68 had expected him to be. Of course, he had a fractious. He didn't have huge majorities in both houses backing his every move. So I think Nixon essentially made a decision, um, which is one JFK also made. He said, I'm good at foreign policy. We have a foreign policy problem. That domestic stuff that those are negotiables. Ah, OK. And, and you don't want to forget, JFK, why? An example would be public sector unions. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, an advisor throughout, he's sort of the clown and wise man of the minstrel show of the great society, Moynihan. He's a brilliant guy who committed folly and yet also commentated to the audience from time to time, oh, now we are committing folly, or then, you know... It's very theatrical. Anyway, Moynihan uh, was there when Kennedy signed an executive order. I think it's 10988 that um, established government public sector unions more formally. And that became a precedent that was followed across the country. And the way Moynihan recalled it, Kennedy was preoccupied that afternoon and Caroline was there and, you know, maybe sitting with her pony or something. And he signed this this uh, executive order without really thinking it through, but because his labor department said he should. And it had tr a tremendous effect on the nature of our economy. What if we had no public sector unions today? 
Um, a lot of us believe that probably we'd be better off, but Kennedy hadn't thought it through and he was distracted by foreign policy, by Cuba, by Vietnam eventually, you know, um, so he, he was distracted. So was Nixon. Nixon lived for foreign policy. He thought he would make his name in foreign policy and the rest were negotiables and their consequences because of course domestic policy matters. Hmm. So you said, of course, there are two sides to the debate. There's people pushing the great society and including surprising people like Nixon or at least acquiescing to it. Then there are people who are opposing the great society from the very beginning. Um, conservatives in, in the Congress among other places, but they're largely ineffective in stopping much of the great society legislation, for example, Medicare and Medicaid. Why are conservatives unable in this story to marshal public support and votes in Congress to stop this? Well, this is the essential question of life. I'm just pulling together a book for the American Institute of Economic Research of critics of the New Deal from the 30s. They made some good arguments. They were. Um, uh, but they didn't get anywhere. Roosevelt won in a landslide a second time in 36. The election was all about the New Deal, uh, and he killed it, FDR did. Uh, I think that one reason is the critics are too shrill. Another is the way Congress is set up and our modern conception of a politician as someone who brings home our goodies. Well, in a goodie handout contest, the Democrats are always going to win because they'll hand out more. It, uh, so there needs to be some sense of, of the long-term interests of the Republic. Uh, the Republicans were unable to summon that. Also, there was the pressure of the Vietnam War and this feeling that we had to make things up to the country for the Vietnam War. Also, the civil rights issue. Um, if, if there's going to be rioting in Detroit, we'll do anything to stop the rioting, which, you know, uh, except address the true nature of what's going on in Detroit. I mean, the unions weren't particularly supportive of African-Americans in Detroit. Uh, and that was part of the problem, the bigotry of the unions from, from early on, um, the urban renewal of the 50s, unhoused, flattened the houses of many African-Americans in Detroit, and it was said that the, the riders in Detroit in the 60s were people who disappeared after urban renewal when their houses were uh, were bulldozed and came back to riot in, in the famous tragic riot of the 60s. Uh, so so what are, we have to think what we're doing for people, but the, it, the anxiety of the war cast made a fog. Uh, and arguments against spending, it was hard to hear them. It really, unfortunately, took the 70s and the purgatory of the pain resulting from great society commitments for us to find our way uh, to find clear vision again. So the, you, you said at the very beginning, you thought that the great society, um, because the conservative argument failed against things like Medicare and Medicaid, um, that the great society be has become a permanent part of American life. Do you, do you think that's true? And if so, what, do you, what are the lessons that we can learn from the, that great society era? A little becomes big. I don't think Wilbur Mills, the powerful chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, ever thought that um, Medicare would become this big or Medicaid. He was pretty he was pretty upset when he began to realize what he'd done. And there's a funny scene in the book where um, Johnson goes around and Johnson's trying to get him to spend, agree to spending on something else and therefore brings chairs of other committees and they're all in the White House and goes around and everyone says, when he gets to each cabinet member or chair, says, are you with me? And the person says, yes. And, and then uh, he gets to Wilbur, the Ways and Means Committee, and says, Wilbur, you see where you are? You're alone, Wilbur. And Wilbur says, yes, I see where I am. I am in the wrong room. And he leaves. <laughs> I am in the wrong room. I, I, I really liked Wilbur Mills. I think he deserves a revival. Uh, Arkansas. So 
And I really liked a few other people um, I hadn't really encountered before. Moynihan is one of them, even though he, he, he worked a lot of mischief and not only participating in that public sector union executive order. Also, when it comes to architecture, for example, which we associate with the Great Society and made it so hideous in our memory, the um, the architecture of the Great Society of, the, of Washington uh, he, Moynihan wrote a, a memo about aesthetics saying we should have new architects, exciting architects, build buildings, which meant in that period, international school or brutalism, big concrete blocks, buildings that look like basements even when they're oh, above oh, ground. Yes, yes right. Um, think of HUD, that, right? Um, and the HUD building uh, or um, the Johnson Library, which the Johnsons gave into, I think, because they wanted to be cool like the Kennedys and is awfully daunting as the structure in Austin. Uh, that came from Moynihan. He wrote that. He knew a lot of, uh, and I think he kind of regretted it later because he lived in a modern building, the U.S. Um, embassy and residence in in Delhi, and he didn't like it very much. It a, you know, uh, and and Liz didn't like it. Mrs. Moynihan. So so uh, anyway, Moynihan brought a lot of ugly things. He tried to get guaranteed income. Same discussion as today. Uh, but at least he was honest about it. He had some little, uh, there was a little experiment running with guaranteed income. And when that experiment showed that people didn't go back to work when they got guaranteed income, and Moynihan wrote a note in National Review and said, boy, were we wrong. Well, you can't imagine a politician saying that today. Right. He was sort of a, someone's compared him to the world of Burke, where senators, Edmund Burke, that is where senators, we're beholden to the truth as well as constituencies and sometimes the truth over constituencies. This was in Moynihan's mind. I liked him a lot. And I liked Reagan, who's got a sub story in this book. You know, Reagan was the one, the witness who eventually was able to speak truth and became power, not to speak truth to power, but became power. For example, over these new federally funded public interest lawyers who would, among other things, attack states. So he's in a state government, Reagan, governor of California, trying to reform welfare so it won't bust the whole state budget. And guess what? Federally funded lawyers attack him. What's that, what's that about? Um, you know, it, it, Reagan emerges in this book as as the man capable of leading us out of some of this fantasy of the great society. Uh, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning and you talk a lot about it in the book is um, the, the new history is not just exploring the idealism of the great society people, but looking at the consequences. And one of the things that you mentioned, and I guess it's appropriate for a person uh, who has been involved with the Hayek Prize, you say on page 415, you say, but public planners did not possess all the information. And I wonder if you could talk for just a moment about your understanding of in what ways, in, according, in your opinion, the Great Society failed and the importance of what political economists call the knowledge problem in that failure. Yes, I'd like to say two things. Um, just getting back to Great Society and permanent part of life, absolutely. Um, because we don't know when, but, but but now is when in our future will be a collapse that results from those great society commitments. I mean, that's the permanent thing that our children are inheriting. But to go to the knowledge problem, economics is an interesting field. And in my experience um, over the decades, I've come to believe that micro kind of works. That is businesses, their view, point of view of the firm, supply, demand. If you limit the rent a landlord could charge, can char may charge, you may find a shortage of apartments. Macro is, is debatable. And what the knowledge problem is, um, this point made by Hayek and others, is, is a different economic philosophy. What it says is, Experts can never know everything. It's too hard for them to have knowledge of everything. Therefore, they shouldn't have that much authority. Mm -hmm. That's all. And one thing that ran through the Great Society, the best and the brightest concept, was if we hire guys smart enough, that would be McNamara, um, defense secretary, or 
Domestic guys, Sergeant Shriver, a man with all the goodwill and plenty of knowledge in the world, even if we hire the best and the brightest, the most good looking, the men with the nicest hair, they may not be able to deliver because they can never know about individual transactions. And it's so true, isn't it? You say, um, I mean, we've seen this in the COVID experience, the loss, first the authorities say masks aren't necessary. Then they say masks are necessary. Then they say masks and, and must work. Then they say masks may not work, only a certain kind of mask works. And this um, has a tremendous cost because it erodes political trust. And Philip Howard has written about this, the man who wrote The Death of Common Sense. If the authority is telling you she she will throw you off the plane if your mask isn't on quite right, but she might not even be correct about that mask. Then you sitting in your in your cramped seat in the plane grow angry, and then you have to decide to express that anger. Is this a fight you want to have? Well, plenty of people do want to have that fight, which is unfortunate. But there there you are. It, it, too it, there can't be too many, and certainly not specific rules for society because our knowledge is not that great. And um, here, I, I don't generally have any time for talk about elites because we're all elites. If we're listening to this podcast, we're elite. We have time to listen to a podcast. We, we went to university, whatever. But, but here is where the anger against elites comes from. Whence the anger is this, this supposition that top people can tell you how it all will work. Uh, that um, that supposition, where is the cost-benefit analysis of what happened to young men who stayed home two years in their mother's guest bedroom, right. ingesting various substances and playing video games the whole time? What happened to their skill set and their interest in attaining a skill set subsequent to the COVID quarantine? No one has quantified that yet. It does, is that damage greater than whatever damage would have occurred had we allowed young people to work throughout COVID. Well, that arithmetic is only going to be revealed to us later, isn't it? And uh, it, so it, this idea that authorities know everyone is very important. And, and also, you know, this sort of ultimate expression of elite expertise was and, and political um, and the way elites, you know, I hate that word. Okay, so let's say the way professors cave to politics is important too. Professors will shill for politics just as anyone else will under uh, sufficient pressure. And in the book, I have a portrait of Arthur Burns, who's a superstar economist, the Federal Reserve Chairman. Um, and it's really, it's called Burns Agonistes. And it's really about how he gave in to Richard Nixon um, as, as central bankers often do to politicians regarding um, inflation and allowed inflation to grow, even though he knew better. He knew better than anyone what damage inflation could cause. Uh, so, so that's the thing. Planners are not immune. They're, they're men like, or women like the rest of us. And of course, they give in to political pressures. Therefore, you want to question their recommendations as well, alas. Right, Even when they right. Mean, um, mean that's an well. important lesson. Uh, thinking about the Great Society now, past the 1960s and 70s. Nixon acquiesces in it. Reagan pushes back against it. But even Reagan is not successful, of course, in pu pushing back things like Medicare or Medicaid. And now those have been expanded significantly. Um, what's the future, if this is a fair question to ask, what's the future of the Great Society? I, I think we'll have a, a severe financial challenge for the US. Sometimes an exogenous force has to bring you to your senses. I mean, in the case of the 20s, for example, um, the federal government came out of a crisis. That was World War I, including, by the way, a plague. That was the influenza. And said, so we're going to cut the debt. We have terrible debt from the world. We're going to cut it. And they did. And I tried to figure out what Coolidge was a superstar. He was amazing. The Senate was more of the old pre-17th Amendment Senate in those days. But why did they do it? I think one factor was the U.S. was not so thoroughly situated and comfy and seemingly permanent in the throne of world superpower. 
the UK was over there. Well, we'd come out of World War I better than the UK, and they were on the down and we were on the up. But maybe that could be reversed. I mean, sterling is the most important currency in the world in the lives of the men who, who led us in the 20s. That had always been the case. Well, if we have a bad policy, then sterling might prevail. And, well, England, but England followed a more social democratic path, even though it, the leaders weren't always labor. Um, and we followed a more free market path in the 20s. And we were all locked together in a regime called the gold standard that punished us when we weren't better than England. Uh, gold go over there, uh, shrinking our monetary base. I have to look at the gold standard system and how it worked. We would be, be quite literally punished with recessions if we didn't do better fiscally and in terms of reform than Britain. And we prevailed. And the people sort of understood that. There was no such pressure on the United States in the 60s. We were the superpower. And perversely, when we screwed up the world, people bought dollars. People, and they still do. In a crisis, they buy dollars, even a crisis generated by poor policy in the U.S. But I do think um, that can be challenged much more so than, than it could have been in the 60s. That's because, for example, of the rise of new currencies, not just cryptocurrencies. Not, you know, um, and that it's quite possible, given where we are with communications and technology and um, and distrust in the U.S. government, that a currency could challenge the dollar and that our interest rate could go up to to 1970s levels, which is to say over 15 percent. And then people wake up. I think also, frankly, the U.S. will have a, a religious awakening. It may not please us all the way it occurs because there's a true crisis in our culture now about how we raise our kids, how we live. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were a mass religious awakening. And some of, as I said, some of it might take a form that I personally didn't agree with. I'm a classical liberal, I believe in freedom, but, but that may happen as well. Um, it, it's, it, you know, how it's not just, that homeschooling expands in the current environment. Um, I think something more than that's going to happen. Hmm. Amity, tell us a little bit. I'm struck by the cover of your book, and it's a little um, mysterious, enigmatic to me. Who are the people on the cover and what are they doing? This is a wonderful high-res black and white picture of Americans of all backgrounds. I think I see a clergyman. And then they look like commuters and, and so on, and the lady with the baby looking at something. And when I first saw this picture, I thought, this looks like the Great Society, but and it's a picture of people at New York Penn Station or in Chicago looking at the train schedule or at an airport looking at the board with departures. That's not what it is. It's a photo of Americans in a museum looking at the Mona Lisa, which came to visit the United States in the in the Kennedy period. And the photograph um, comes from Getty Images. That it, it was, I think, a French photographer who took it. But it, it, the picture gives a sense of Americans looking and they're a little perturbed. They're certainly attentive, but they're also hopeful. And you can see it in the image. And, and that was America then. And I like to think it's America now. Mm, fascinating. Uh, Emily, you, you talked about the significant role of Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, in the pushing the Great Society. What about Ruther's effect on the American automobile industry? Because you, you talk in the book also about the rise of Toyota as a rival to American automakers. Yes, this book isn't about uh, only the bad. I think it's also the good, which is enterprise very often. Uh, the entrepreneurial spirit that got expressed later, say through Silicon Valley, is born in this period. So I try to track it. Um, and. Uh, the interloper in the book is Toyota. Uh, the unions and the companies, Henry Ford too, think car can cost whatever they want the car to cost. Nobody else will make cars that Americans will buy. And Toyota comes in and is the threat. It's a better made, cheaper car. And the, 
that's the warning because of course what our unions and what our automakers together did was price price Detro price Detroit out of survival. Flint, Michigan, the stories in the Michael Moore films, a lot of that comes from Detroit's failure because we blindly and idealistically made, made paying workers too expensive for ourselves. Uh, so there you are. Uh, and I was surprised to discover how clear that story is. Uh, our, our arrogance was in not looking at what happens when international competition comes to America. There's a, a, an auto executive who, who gets warned about Toyota and says, well, when I look out of my window, all I see are Fords. Uh -huh. And it, it, that is a kind of willed blindness on the part of not only unions but also automakers and that was so much in evidence in the 60s well it seems to be a common theme in your book the the perils of ignoring market fundamentals yes well that's a, that's a sober uh, assessment a sober warning um, against uh, in some ways the consequences of the unintended consequences of idealism uh, Amity Schles, your book, Great Society, A New History, Le let me recommend it to all of our listeners if they haven't purchased it and read it already. Thank you so much for taking the time today to join us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.